0: Chapter 2, verse 8. That's Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. And we're going to read to chapter 3, verse 5. The voice of my beloved... Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, In the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night I sought him who loves my soul. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchman found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning, everybody. Well, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Sam. It's a privilege to get to preach this morning uh, from this passage. Uh, I'll pray. Uh, you can pray for me, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Let me pray heavenly as we come before your word knowing that all of your word is important for us helpful for us it teaches us not just about well, it teaches us about salvation it also teaches us how to live and so please do work through this passage this morning we pray in jesus name amen well we are continuing in the song of songs as in The greatest of all songs like you might say the king of kings is the greatest of all kings well this is the song of all songs i don't know if you like that's not the best song i know the better song no you don't this is it's biblical this is the best song um and of course what's that the best song going to be about love um, we grew up and we listened to a bit of country music growing up and so there's different songs about different things like your ute or your, you know, your dog or your, you know, the latest whatever, if making a fence. But none of those could be the greatest song of all songs, of course. If it's going to be the greatest song, it would have to be about love, romance. And so we have this song, it's, it's a pretty provocative song, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks or you've been reading it. Um, you know, it's, um, it's not prudish, it's not ashamed. It's quite suggestive at times, but it is never dirty, is it? It's playful, it's fun, but it's never cheap. It's never casual when it comes to things of love and sex. Um, so, the first, first week that we were doing Song of Songs, uh, we were driving to church and, and all the kids were in the car and I thought, I probably should warn them, you know, that, that this Sunday it's going to be a bit different. You're going to hear some things from the, from the pulpit that might make you feel uncomfortable. Don't worry about that, okay? It's only going to get worse when it's your dad, <laughs> when it's your dad that gets up and say, uncomfortable as we are, here we are. Um, people have sometimes thought this is a mistake, that this book is in the Bible at all. But then I, I, I wonder if it would be a strange thing if a book on this topic wasn't in the Bible, that God wouldn't give us a whole book dis, dis, discuss it in a discussion of these kinds of things. It's not like the topics of love, sex, romance, desire is on, just kind of on the periphery of our lives, it only kind of impacts us, like some of us, every now and then. No, it's like, it's, it's, it's a huge, almost central part of our lives. We only exist because we had, at one stage at least, a mother and a father. And it's in the songs that we hear, we listen to, it's the songs are. Often predominantly about love. It's in the the movies that we watch, it's in the TV shows, the dramas that we watch on Netflix or what what have you, it's in the stories that we tell one another. If you come over to our house, we are likely going to ask you, if you're a couple, how did you meet or how did you get together? Tell us the story. Nowadays, love, sex, romance is not just in those areas, it's part of our politics, it's part of our media. So C.J. Mahaney writes this, he says, Would God leave us His most beloved creatures on our own when it comes to something as powerful and universal as sexuality? Would He give us such a gift without also giving guidance? Where is a Christian couple supposed to look for a model of God-glorifying sexuality? If not to Scripture, where? So we get a book about it. And then the book that we do get about it, is in a particular kind of genre, it's a song. Isn't that interesting? That's not like necessarily, although there are commands and different um, rules around it that spelled out elsewhere, this book is poetry. It's a song. And then also that we find that song in the section of the Bible, which is wisdom literature. Like God inviting us when it comes to this area, this massive area of our lives, to live wisely, not foolishly. That's how wisdom literature often works. It gives us kind of two ways to go. So think about the the book of Proverbs. There's the the wise person, but then there's also the fool. Right? Think about Ecclesiastes. There's there's life under the sun. You could go that way, where, where it's mainly just meaninglessness. Or you could live a life transcendent, which goes beyond this kind of just material world and includes God in it. And so the song says there's God's way, and there's the world's way. There's God's way, which is the predominant kind of voice in the book. There's, there's the girl. She's from Shulam, the Shulamite girl. And then there's her shepherd boy. And they have this kind of romantic love that, that's the main two voices we hear in the book. But then there's also mentioned a couple of times Solomon. Solomon. And I think he represents much of what the world represents when it comes to love. Solomon was famous, wasn't he, for getting most of this, pretty much all of this, wrong. Right? Darren read, um, in week one, from 1 Kings 11, it begins like this, says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after other gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Um, Commentator Ian Dugwood, I think that's how I'm going to say it, speaks about the role of Solomon in the song like this. He says, this Solomonic model identifies love as commercial and political transaction. Serving as a means to some other end, whether wealth, political advantage, security, or significance. But that's, a, that's an approach to love, an approach to marriage, which you might describe that, like this that is non exclusive. That is, he or she is not special, she's just one of many. It's an approach to love, sex, and marriage that is casual, it's not intimate. It's dehumanizing. People are just products. They are means to another end. It's an approach that is self-centered. It's an approach that is transactional. Sex is not significant in and of itself. It's not inherently significant. It's just a physical kind of act. It's an approach that is cheap and commercial. That is, love can be bought. It can be bought with money. Does Solomon's approach sound familiar to you? Doesn't that describe the world's approach? All of that? It's our inheritance from the sexual revolution in the 1960s, isn't it? Where two things came together and have stuck. Uh, two things were, and I'm going to talk about this for a little bit because it sets the scene for what we, the world we live in, but also this passage. Two things coming together. First, ideology. A certain way of thinking about what it means to be a person, what it means and what sex is. And then the coming together of technology. The technology which allows a, allows a whole culture to live out that ideology. First, the ideology, which focused on humans' individual freedom. So, a couple of helpful books. is Carl Truman's, which um, Darren mentioned, mentioned um, last week. He, he wrote a book called, it kind of spells out the philosophical movements throughout history, which got us to this point. Um, it, it's a great book. Uh, there's a bigger one than the one that we're selling out there, that's the shorter version, the bigger one is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. There's another book that I read um, this week, it was really helpful, by Louise Perry. So she's an English journalist, she is not a Christian, but she wrote a book that came out last year, and it's called this, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and spells out some of this. Right, they show that our identity in the, in the Western world has become radically individualized, right? And we've, I think we, we, we would recognize that, that, that our identity is not found in those kind of cornerstone institutions of past generations or other cultures such as the family or church or nation. No, my identity is found in me. It's my inner self, the psychological self, if you like. It's me expressing me, in all my individual amazingness, because I'm so awesome, and everything kind of da- is downstream from that, that. That I must be expressing me at all times, and society ought not get in the way of that. So that, that just plays out in almost every corner of, of the way our world works, I think. Like, I think about music, like, you could have. Everyone in the car together, and we do not have to share in the music playing, on the, playing in the radio, do we? We can just put in our own earbuds, I listen to my music because I have my curated playlist, and I should not be forced to listen to other people's music. Or, if I want to watch TV, I should be able to watch the exact show that I want to watch, I shouldn't have to watch a screen that is kind of communal with other people, I'll have my phone or my tablet, and we'll all watch individually the thing, the curated kind of list that I want to watch. And so it is with sex or gender who i am is my inner feelings not my physical reality and society cannot be restraining my expression of me i must have freedom so that's where the person that's where our identity is found it's found in me sigmund freud came along and said that sex then is not just actually a behavior it's not something that you do on the outside He made it central to what a person is it's core to being a human it's it's our identity so then follow along sex becomes political because the politicians are not just making rules around our behaviors they're making rules around our identity carl truman points this out he says that's why the old saying doesn't work anymore, the old saying that, that Christians, we, we love, and there's truth in it, that we, we love the sinner, but hate the sin. You can't say that. Why? Because the sinner is the sin. It's not just a behavior, it's who I am. But then also, for the sake of freedom, then the act of sex beca- to become Meaningless that is devoid of meaning, unless you want to voluntarily add some meaning to it. That means you can do it with whoever, whenever, however, as much as you like. Uh, Louise Perry, in her book, calls this sex disenchantment. It is to take the enchantment out of sex. It's to make it kind of meaningless empty. It's purely physical. It's like kind of giving someone a handshake. It's like I made someone a coffee at work. I just gave them a coffee. That's basically, it's leisurely activity without any meaning unless someone kind of voluntarily adds inherent meaning to it. But there's nothing inherent in the the act. So what you can do with it? Well, you can do with it whatever you like. You can sell it if you like. Who cares? It's just a physical thing without meaning. However, you can't kind of just go away and live like that if every time that you engage in sexual activity, you're opening yourself up to becoming a family, to becoming a mum or a dad. What you need actually is technology to enable you to live out that kind of ideology. Well, that's what the invention of the pill did. Now, everyone could essentially be like Solomon, not worry about becoming parents without becoming parents. And that's. And that's the technology to allow you to do, essentially, whatever you like. Um, Louise Perry, again, she's not a Christian, but she, she maps out history in a really interesting way. She says, there were really two sexual revolutions. She says, there was the first century revolution, which was led by Christians, which essentially said, in that time, when men could be promiscuous, but the women had to be chased, no men, you need to act like the women. You need to be more like the women. Well, the next sexual revolution in the 1960s was actually women saying, no, we want to act like the men we want to be able to play like that but of course so the pill's not that super effective and so other technologies and were legalized such as abortion so if the pill didn't work we could of course kill the baby another technology has come along which allows us to act like solomon i think and that is of course the internet polygamy is not legal in australia you can't have 700 wives but you can act like that online with thousands of men or women at your disposal in pornography. Sex is obviously meaningless. So is the person, actually. They don't even, they're not even there. They are just products. And it removes all any need to date, obviously, to woo, to treat kindly, to wait until marriage, to commit in any sense. He or she isn't really even a he or she. They're just a product, an empty vessel. keep going with the technology, we have dating apps. You know, not inherently wrong to meet someone online, but think about what that that, that can do to the way we think about people and our psychology. It can be dehumanising, can't it? It can become consumeristic. In 2015, Vanity Fair had an article which was interviewing people who were using uh, dating apps. And it said, it, it wrote this like this, it said, with these dating apps, this person said, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. Another person said, it is like ordering food on a delivery service, but you're ordering a person, flicking through people. No, not up to my standard, not up to my standard, not up to my standard. Like going through clothing at a clothes rack at a store. What's the result of all this? Ideology, technology coming together. Who could like look at the world and think, it's, it's worked out really well, you know? No, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Incredibly destructive. Pain, murder, regret... Um, a lady named Bridget Fatassi was a, a writer for Playboy magazine. She wrote a blog last year, um, was reflecting on her life when she believed all the, what she would say now, the lies of the sexual revolution, and she wrote this. She said, and it's, 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 it's terribly sad, she said, I can only think of a handful I don't regret. The rest I would put in the category of casual, which I would define as sex that is either meaningless or mediocre or both. If I get really honest with myself, I'd say most of these usually drunken encounters left me feeling empty and demoralized and worthless. I wouldn't have said that at the time, though. At the time, I would have told you I was liberated, even while I tried to drink away the sick feeling of rejection when my most recent hookup didn't call me back. At the time, I would have said one-night stands made me feel emboldened. The lie I told myself for decades was, I'm not in pain, I'm empowered. Looking back, it isn't a surprise that I lied to myself, because from a young age, sex was something I was lied to about. Well, you know, into all of that, enter Song of Songs, you know, which is like a cool breeze, I think, into just absolute darkness, like light into darkness, God painting this beautiful, wonderful picture of wisdom inviting us, inviting all of us, no, go this way, this is wisdom, do not go the foolish direction. Phil Wright can use this illustration of what the song is doing, he he describes, you know, like when you, I don't know if you're a a puzzle person, where you put puzzles, you know, so, but imagine throwing a thousand piece puzzle onto the, onto the table and and there are all the pieces, they're all kind of broken up. Now, if you're going to put that together, what's very helpful is a picture of what you're going to put it together to create, right? A beautiful, Oh, that looks beautiful. That, that will work. These pieces go here. Well, so it is with our world that has left just scattered pieces of what it means to have sex and romance and marriage and just scattered them. If we are to put the pieces back together, well, we need a picture. And that's kind of what the Song of Songs is like. And each week as we go through it, it's like another piece, you know, another piece another piece, another piece, seeing a beautiful picture of the wisdom of God. So in the structure of the book, where our couple is in the season of betrothal, they intend to get married, indeed they do get married, we'll see that next week. And right now in our passage, they definitely look forward to getting married. But they must not act married before they are married. So the last verse of the, the poem that um, Darren preached on last week went like this, 2 verse 7, if you have your Bibles, have a look, it says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Then our verse begins, new song. So 2 verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. Leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. So she is very excited to see him again. Uh, before her eyes can see him, her ears can hear him. She says, "It's the voice of my beloved." I don't know if he was singing. I hope he had a good voice. But she could know. It. She knew his voice. She's like, "That's my beloved. He's coming." And then she describes how he's coming. He's clearly keen to see her. Right? That's always helpful in a, in a um, you know, in a, in a romantic. Just to know that you know, he's as keen as I'm keen, you know, like that's sometimes an insecurity. No, they're both obviously very, very keen. It says, he is leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, basically ancient superman. You know, he's like, is that a bird? Is that a plant? No, that's my beloved. He is bounding over mountains and hills. He's coming with speed, like there's a skip in his step. He's not just dawdling along. It's like, oh, off to see my beloved. No, he's like excited. He's running. He's not tripping over. Like He is getting there as fast as he can, over, overcoming mountains and hills. She says, notice what he's like, a gazelle or a young stag. And I just read the last verse of the last poem, Do you remember? Let me read it again. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Just after she said, by the gazelles and does do not stir up love, here he comes like a gazelle or a young stag. Clearly, he thinks it's time to awaken love. And then he arrives... And they're not actually together, are they? See how verse 9 ends says, Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice." Sounds a bit creepy, doesn't it? A bit, sounds a bit stalkerish. Don't do that, boys, I don't think. I don't think go up to the window and just gaze in. and know, No. But he doesn't barge in. He pauses outside. And I think it's actually a really beautiful thing. He sees her and she sees him. And there's just a moment of like looking at one another. I don't know if you ever do that, if you're married, that you just look at one another and just so thankful you're here, I'm here, we're together, adoring one another, taking each other in. Finally, he speaks. But notice when he speaks, it's her singing about what he said. She must have loved it. Verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Well, he talks good, don't he? He's pretty good at the talking thing, brothers. We might be able to learn something here, um, and it might be we might not be able to pull off. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. Next time you want to go to Mackers or whatever it is, <laughs> but but you could say something maybe better than Are you ready? You know, like or something like that. It's clear with he's clear with what he wants. Hey, come away. And he says, Why? Verse eleven for behold the winter is past the rain is over and gone like the winter of their relationship is over winter is like you know coldness and separation and distance he's like that's over it's springtime now and he begins to describe what springtime's like but springtime is the time that's it's perfect for love perfect for marriage perfect for coming together. He describes spring. Verse 12, he says, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. So he uses all the, all the different senses. He says, there's sight. Look, the flowers are blooming. He uses hearing. He's like, it's the time of singing. Even the turtle doves are singing. I googled, what does a turtle dove sound like when it's singing? Because I didn't know anything about turtle doves. I know there's two on the second day of Christmas, and that's all I knew. <laughs> And so I looked it up, and, and it's got this like purring. It sounds pretty good, but it's, it's like a purring sound. They must have loved it. Verse 13 speaks about taste. It says, this, the fig tree ripens its fig, and the, and the vines are in blossom. And then he goes to smell. They give forth fragrance. Do you see what's happening? Last poem, she said, hey, do not waken a love before it's time. He's saying, it's time. So he repeats it again Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. I think this is a lot like a marriage proposal. I think he's saying, Let's move to the next stage. Verse 14, he continues, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He's like, I wanna hear you, I wanna see you, but where is she? He says, like, you're a dove in the, in the cleft of a rock. Like, doves are, are lovely. They're peaceful. They're gentle. They're lovely birds, but they don't have much to protect themselves. And so one of the ways that doves protect themselves is by hiding out in hard-to-get to places, like the cleft of a rock. And he's like, that's what you're like to me. Like, you're like a dove. But... you're unattainable to me. Like, I can't get to you. Right? Remember, he's behind a wall. He's looking through the ladders. He's looking through the window. Like, we're not together, but he longs for that. Um, And so, so, I was thinking about some of my mates growing up. Um, So, you know, in our younger days... um, you know, guys sometimes have proverbial wisdom when it comes to, like, dating and relationship. And there's different proverbs that guys will use. or even girls, probably, maybe too as well. It's not, I don't have, have as much familiarity with that. But um, there was a group of guys uh, that I used to be mates with. Uh, well, I still am. And um, they, they were all single at the time, and they called themselves the Brumbies. They were the Brumbies who run wild and free, and can't be tamed by, by girls. But that, it was just a ploy that, that wasn't really, it wasn't true. Um, but one of the classic lines, and I'm just mentioning them to go, that's how you might read this situation between them, but it's not what's going on, right? So one of the lines was, in its classic, treat mean, keep keen. You know, treat them mean, keep them keen. That is like, I'm keeping distance so that you'll just get, you know, more and more keen and, and what have you go, going like that. I don't think she's doing that. She's just as keen as he is. Another one our mate said was, if it's meant to be, she'll come to me, right? Now that's... Now, that's not what he's doing either, right? He's not sitting back going like, well, she's a dove up there in the cleft. If it's meant to be, she'll just come to me. No, he's like, come on, let's go. So she responds to him. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. think she's saying before i come to you before we get married before we go to this next stage before we enter into the springtime of our relationship there are also dangers that spring brings she says our vineyards are in blossom so she's like yes no we are ripe for marriage we are at the right age we do love one another like we are fitted like it is springtime for us however our relationship is still vulnerable Like grapes to a hungry fox, foxes spoil vineyards. We do not want foxes to spoil our vineyard. So she says, catch the foxes. Catch them. She's being careful. She's being careful. She's not catastrophizing, is it? She's like the foxes, you know, the little foxes. She's not like there are giant bears everywhere, you know, (laughs) like, oh, goodness. You know, there is like lions prowling around, you know, no, it's, it's, it's foxes, it's little foxes. They're, they're, they're small, they're nuisances, they're cunning, they're sneaky, you might not notice them, they're little things that can actually turn into big things if we don't catch them. So we've got to catch them. And commentators point out that actually what she's saying is plural, she's not actually just saying it to him, she's saying it to the community as well. She's saying, she's bringing other people in and saying, hey, would you help us catch the foxes, the foxes that might destroy the relationship that, we, that, is, that is burgeoning between us. That is so wise. In your relationship, you would invite others. It is probably, probable, and very likely, that the little foxes that you face, the little difficulties, the things that you're going through, are not unique to you. That others have faced those things themselves, other married people. And the chances are the dangers you face are the dangers others have faced. So why not get help in catching foxes? Why not get help if you're facing that? Maybe you're a married couple and you're like, I could name like a list of foxes in our marriage that are nibbling away that that are just difficult. Like we misunderstand each other a lot. We argue more than we used to. We're not listening very well. We've grown apart emotionally there has been some sexual immorality. We are struggling with forgiveness, or I'm feeling neglected. We would not call our marriage right now white hot or rock rock solid. And on and on you could go, well, you have to do something with foxes, don't you? What are you going to do? You don't pat them. You don't play with them. You don't ignore them and think, well, maybe they'll go away sometime. No, you round them up and you catch them with the help of others so that's her answer to his invitation it's not no it's not never but it is hey catch the foxes verse 16 i think reassures him she says my beloved is mine and i am his he grazes among the lilies so she is using what is covenantal language which will happen at their wedding it echoes jeremiah seven twenty three when god says I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, it's, it's like I am his, but, but equally I know that he is and will be mine. We are each other's. He says, he grazes among the lilies. I think, take it for what it's worth, I think that's about kissing. Um, a picture of springtime and their love, like the, the lilies are there. Later on, she says in, in chapter five thirteen, he says, his lips are lilies. Dripping with liquid myrrh. Well, right now he, he grazes among the lilies. Well, at least he will one day, perhaps. I, I, tend to, I tend to read it as future because of what she says next. Verse 17 Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. So until that day comes, right? That day breathes. Until that day that we're looking forward to comes to life, that the the shadows are gone, she says, until that day, turn. Like, you're going to have to go alone. You're going to have to go by yourself and go back, in fact, the way you came. Be like a gazelle or a young stag again and go on cleft mountains. So that's the main idea, I think. It's like now is not quite time. I've told you what to do. Now let's go. Now go. Now, I think that's the main idea. But also here, what one commentator, Ian um, Duguid, again says. He says, You don't have to be Sigmund Freud, though, to see a potential connection here to her breasts. A connection that will be made explicitly later on in the song. So even while she sends her man away for the time being, the very range of mountains upon which this gazelle is going to roam will constantly remind both of them of the destination to which they are ultimately headed and for which they are both longing. So she's a godly woman. She's setting godly boundaries, and she's doing it in a really beautiful way. So now we get to the next poem, and the next poem kind of flows on, I think, from that one. They're apart. But it's not like out of sight out of mind no he is on her mind especially as she goes to sleep and has dreams Uh, this this poem feels different and you'll i mean you probably already sense it as as it was being read but you'll notice it feels different to the first poem so she's so it's a dream essentially most commentators all agree it's it this is probably this is some kind of dream sequence so Verse 1 says this, On my bed by night I sought Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but found Him not. Now the word night there is plural. It, it, it means recurring. This is like night after night after night. This is this recurring dream where she longs to be with Him, but she's not with Him. Notice He is, he is the, the one, her soul, she says, my whole person, loves tremper longman puts it like this he says he is named by her desire she does it a bunch through this these these five verses but you you notice in principle that love is not always easy it's not always just like springtime let's run around in the in the countryside blossoms it's it's hard sometimes there's distance to be overcome and so verse 2 she gets up and goes to find him she says i will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares I will seek Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but found Him not. So she goes off into the city. The city is not exactly springtime, countryside, let's go away. It's not exactly romance, is it? It's not a place that is, that is kind of good for romance and intimacy and love. No, it's the cold, dark streets of the city with lots of other people. It's even a dangerous place for a young woman to walk around at night, especially when she's looking confused and looking to, like she's lost and trying to find somebody. But she goes. She says she goes to the streets, she goes to the public squares looking for him, but she found him not. Verse 3. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Right, so instead of finding him... She is found, and it's not by him, it's by the watchmen. The watchmen are like the city patrol. They walk around the city, making sure that everything is orderly and everything is safe in the city. And she has caught their attention with her frantic search. And so she asks them, she says, have you seen him whom my soul loves? I wonder what they, like, does he have a name? You know, like, I'm going to need more than, than that. But maybe she thinks maybe you've seen him you know you walk the streets have you seen the one whom my soul loves well, we don't get their answer maybe they don't answer so now she's tried her house she's looked at the house she's looked in the streets she's looked in the public square she's even asked the watchman nothing but then verse four begins or verse four then says scarcely had i passed them the watchmen, when I found him whom my soul loves. Well, this is very slow motion now, isn't it? Like if it was a movie, everything gets in slow motion because their eyes catch in the city and you can imagine her face, it's like, yes. And then you can imagine his face, it's like, what are you doing in the city? You know, (laughs) confused, but then like excited as well. Oh, that's awesome. And so they kind of run slow motion to each other. And she says, I held him and would not let him go. It's the same word actually for what she said that he was meant to do for the foxes, catch them. She's like, I caught him. <laughs> this was no catch and release. This was like, I caught him and I did not, I would not let him go. She like, just grabs him, pulls him in. It's like, not exactly like traditional wife vibes, is it? But I think he probably liked it. And, he said this, and then she says this, I held him and would not let him go Until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me, she says, let's go to my mum's house. That's not that romantic, is it? (laughs) You wonder what he thought. Hmm. (laughs) But it is suggestive. She's dreaming, I think, of inviting him inside the house of her family. No more wall in between us. No more looking through the window. No more looking through the lattice. Come inside. Come into all the way into my family. Actually, all the way, she says, into the chamber of her who conceived me. That is, come into that place where the previous generation conceived the next generation. What do you think she's saying? What she thinks she's dreaming of. She thinks she's dreaming of having a family with him. That maybe we'll conceive the next generation. And we'll have our own children. But as they walk into that chamber notice the dream ends and for the second time the song in the song we hear the words verse 5 i adjure you o daughters of jerusalem by the gazelles or the does of the field that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases like she longs for all these things she dreams for all of these things she dreams of marriage she dreams of oneness She dreams of a family but the dream ends and she says but not yet not yet elvis presley worried about this when he said wise men say only fools rush in but i can't help falling in love with you shall i stay would it be a sin if i can't help falling in love with you yes it would be a sin you should leave don't rush in. So that's the passage, what we say in closing. The theme is mainly, I think, about waiting. I think you can see that. Something we're not necessarily good at, our generation, waiting. In generation of instant gratification. But will you wait? I want to apply this to all, all different ones of us, but especially for those waiting for a marriage, will you wait when it comes to sex? What's the alternative? See, if you go an alternative, you don't wait for marriage, then really what we have to do is empty sex of so much of its meaning. Sex just needs to become basically physical. Basically just, it's just sex. It stands alone. It's not part of oneness in every part of my life, which which is what marriage is, which is what covenant is. But it's just oneness in this one area without commitment, without promises, then maybe it'll lead to something, but maybe it might not. I remember um, working in the factory, you know, um, amongst, you know, my friends and my mates in the factory, there was a welder back in the day, and the logic was, it was all often repeated, mate, you've got to try before you buy. You know, that's the logic, isn't it? And you probably you've all heard that. You've got to try before you buy. You know, the logic was, if you're going to go buy a car, what do you do? You test drive it, right? Well, that's what you've got to do with the girls you've got to go for a test drive and yet and so you think they're like oh that sounds logical yeah okay so you've got to try things out and make sure and yet statistically it's those who live together before marriage that are actually more likely to get divorced why is that well tim keller talks about this He's a really helpful sermons on this and he says because living together does not prepare you for marriage almost at all because they're such different things It would be like, I'm preparing for soccer by playing basketball. So, Well, you're going to handball a lot, because that's not exactly the same sport. It's a very different thing. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. You don't practice covenant relationship via consumer relationships, he says. So covenant relationship would be like, I'm not going anywhere. I've made promises to you. This is unbreakable. This is lifelong commitment. This relationship is more important than my feelings, which go up and down and all over the place. I am committed to you for life. A consumer relationship is, you're basically on trial. This is basically a very long job interview to see if you could be my husband or my wife. I'll leave if I'm not fulfilled, or you don't satisfy me, or I could do actually a bit better than you. Tim Keller says, then sex necessarily becomes marketing. It becomes performance. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those trying to indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all kinds of other union, which were meant to go along with it and make up the total union. See, covenant changes the whole dynamic of everything. Suddenly you're not on trial, you're accepted, you are loved, you're together. And so it's not performance. It's not keeping your spot, hoping that someone else doesn't come along and, 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 and he or she could upgrade. No, you're safe. You're free. The, the, the world wants the safety and the, and the, and the wonder. <coughs> like some of these parts of marriage, obviously without getting married. This is a great example of this I read about um, in one of the books I was reading, Louise, forget her name. Please I don't know. In, tw- in 2020, um, there's an American students group that formed together, established an initiative called the Affirmative Consent Project. The Affirmative Consent Project. And they were, they were passing out and, and selling for a cheap price consent kits. Okay, so in the consent kit that, that people should walk around with at university included a contract that people should sign before engaging in, in sexual intercourse they should sign it and they encourage them to sign it and then photograph themselves with that signed consent, right, so that it could protect against abuse. Well, you might begin to wonder, what if you added a couple things like, what if you got dressed up before you signed it? What if you invited friends and family around? What if you, instead of you photograph it, you got a professional photographer? What if you made a whole day of that moment and then you did it do you want the safety you want security but not the commitment our world is so broken it's heartbreakingly broken we who have lived in it which one of us are not somewhat broken malformed by the air that we breathe which is the lies of the sexual revolution And I just wonder if the Christian vision of marriage, the Christian vision of, like, Song of Songs, may be one of our greatest evangelistic tools in the world today. That this vision will just shine such a bright and glorious light on such a dark and broken framework. It's an illustration of, like, the fish in water. Hey, if the fish is in water, it can have a great time. But if that fish is like, I'm being trapped in my individual freedom, and I should not be told, and, and society is holding me into this water, and I should, I'm should i actually, I identify as a land animal. And, and so and if the fish goes, I'm getting out of this water, it'll die. And so God gives us this, like, the boundaries. Why? For freedom. For joy. So that we can abound in all of the joys that sex can bring, the powerful thing that it is. Um, so Louise Perry, that's her name. Um, she finishes her book, right? Again, not a Christian, but finishes her book called Case Against the Sexual Revolution after she surveys all of the pain and devastation that that revolution and the lies that are told has brought for women, has brought for men, has brought for children. She uses her last chapter to prescribe, well, where to? What do we do? What is like a prescription with where to go? And she encourages a thing that's known as Marriage between one man and one woman. Not amazing. So society has never come up with a better. It's, it's had faults and there's been abuses, but there's nothing better. Turns out God is very wise. When you consider who to marry, remember that marriage is a covenant. Not a. It's not a consumer thing. So ask deep questions like. Does he or she know and love the Lord? Do they keep their word? Do they forgive well? Do I want to raise children with them? So the text as a whole encourages us to wait. Wait on marriage. But in a sense, no matter what our relationship status in here this morning, we are all waiting on a marriage. And that is, of course, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 verse 6 says this, then I heard, in this heavenly vision, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, since marriage is a mystery, Paul says, it's a mystery, and he tells us it's concerning Christ and His church, we are always to not just look at marriage, but lift our eyes to the marriage of Christ and His people. And we see the true and ultimate groom. We didn't just leap over mountains and hills but galaxies and stars if you like who came all the way to earth and he was the ultimate spouse who has gone and caught all of the little foxes although our foxes are not so little are they they get in the way of our relationship with god now they are the bed they're the bed of sin of our rebellion against God. He came and he got rid of all of those. Why? How? By dying on the cross for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved, so that we might be free. And he rose again. And he stands, as it were, at the wall of our hearts. And he says, come away. Come with me into eternity now and forevermore to be together. Isaiah 51, 55 verse 1 says, come, God says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you keep going that way? That's the foolish way. I'm saying, come this way. You got no money? Fine, I've paid the price. Jesus says, come away with me. Be united to me. He will one day take us into our eternal home. I love that song we are singing, Almost Home, Almost Home. That's that's exactly what we're talking about. And yet, of the many sins that can keep us away from coming to that invitation, come to that marriage, of the many sins that keep us away or make you feel unworthy, sexual sin must be right at the top of that list, where a person might feel, I am too gone, I am too broke. I'm too dirty. I'm too messed up. I've sinned too many times. Well, brother and sister, have no doubt Jesus has seen every single one of your sins, more than you can bear to even confess to. He sees them all, your worst and most shameful, and he says, arise, come away. Come away from sin. Come to me via the cross, where I paid for it all, and I paid for it all out of love for you. And by His grace, He will make you into His virgin bride, washed pure by His blood. We are all waiting on that day, aren't we? I think waiting on that day patiently helps us wait patiently in this day, in this day. Maybe it's for you waiting for a guy or girl to finally show up. Well, remember you have Christ. Wait patiently. Maybe you're waiting for intimacy in a marriage that is about to happen soon. Well, Christ is now waiting for his bride. You can wait. You can wait. Maybe you're waiting for oneness in a marriage that feels like there hasn't been much oneness for years. Maybe decades. Be patient. Never quit. Christ is enough. Your spouse is not God. God is God. Keep putting those puzzle pieces together, bit by bit, piece by piece. Bring others in to help. You know, marriage can, at many times, feel more like the second poem, hey. Like, I'm just looking for my beloved. Where are you? Longing for intimacy. Longing for connection. Longing to come together again. And notice how the... the, 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 the there's a good lesson in, the, in the, 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 lady, the girl looking for her, the Shulamite, would-be bride she she looks doesn't she and she fails a few times but she doesn't quit she doesn't go you know what i tried he's no good if he if he if he's if he wants that he can come she keeps looking patiently and eventually she finds him and so the encouragement is also look to the lord wait on the lord um let's all ultimately look to christ We'll only love one another best when we love him most. Let me pray. Father, help us to look now, lift our eyes to you. Help us to fix our gaze on the the true and ultimate groom who did everything that it took to have us as your people, spoiled, broken, messy, dirty, as this bride is. You wash her with your, with your righteousness. You have paid for our sin. Oh, I pray that it would be true for each one of us, that we would wait patiently on you and we would come to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.